Welcome to Wholehearted Wednesday. Today, you're going to hear an interview from Heather Tallheimer, and she's going to be speaking to Ollie Davis. He has a PhD in theoretical physics, and you're going to hear about a conversation of his life and also his relationship to spirituality and much more. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Thanks. Thank you, David, and welcome, Ollie. Really delighted to have you um, with us for this conversation today. Oh, I am you. personally really curious about you, about what you've done in your life, being a theoretical physicist at some point or having a PhD nonetheless is so incredible to me because that was the opposite of what I was in school and I could never understand why people loved physics. What got you into physics and like how did you find that particular interest in your life? Well, I think it's probably because I had a good teacher. I think especially when it comes to STEM, so many people get weeded out at an early age they have this concept that they are not into it and they don't like it and things like that. I think a lot of it stems from high school and secondary school, as we call it in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a shame because especially nowadays, you know, with all the stuff we see Elon Musk sending a Tesla to space and all of this cool stuff happening and, you know, the Large Hadron Collider, it's, you know, whenever I tell people, oh, you know, theoretical physics is what I love and what I do, they always say, oh, wow. What do you, uh, what's your opinion on you know, dark matter? And this is you know, uh, a guy who's pouring me a coffee or something like that in a, in a coffee shop or <laughs> you know, somebody who's trying to sell me a pair of jeans or whatever. They'll say like, oh, what do you think about the Higgs boson? And you know, there's this large interest about this kind of discovery process. But I think the reason that they never pursued it wasn't because they didn't love it. They just didn't find out they loved it early enough. Mm. And I think the reason that I pursued it is I just found out because I had such wonderful teachers who kind of really instilled passion and curiosity in me. Wow. I would agree with that. I I think I never connected to a teacher in the science field, so I kind of never went that way. And I went the way (laughs) of history and literature, and here I am today. But that's exciting that someone really touched your soul almost in terms of interesting you in this field. I'm just curious, like, what is it about physics that interests you? Mm. Other people Um, wonder about dark matter. What do you wonder about? Well, I think maybe the easiest way to answer that question would be to tell you what I'm not interested in and what I really am like rubbish at in school. And that's (laughs) things like biology and, you know, those kinds of sciences. Mm -hmm. Because the thing that I find particularly interesting about maths and physics, and, and physics is just an expression of maths, right? is that it's very neat and tidy. And I like that. You can find answers mm. to questions. Whereas, you know, when it, with biology, there's infinite numbers of variability and the universe is just so amazing and so incredible because nothing makes sense and there's an exception to every rule and wow, isn't that creation amazing? But then when you look at physics, it's amazing for another reason and that's everything's so orderly and everything makes sense <laughs> and we can predict everything. That's what really appeals to me. And especially in this day and age, physics is, it's not an observational science anymore. You know, we we think of sciences as you observe and then you try to work out why something happened. Yeah. You know, why does the sun rise? Why does this animal make this noise? Why does, you know, these two chemicals make this reaction? But the upper echelons of research in many fields, but especially physics, it's all about I think that this is going to happen. And then a hundred years or 50 years down the line, somebody says, oh yeah, this person was right. So Mm -hmm. it's more like, you know, 
trying to, it's like seeing a picture and there's a missing jigsaw piece and you say, okay, that jigsaw piece looks like it's a cat. So I think a cat goes there, but we don't have the capability. We don't have the piece right now to be really sure. Right. And then 20 years down the line, some other physicist who's read your paper and got really inspired finds the cat that you predicted would be there 20 years ago. And that's what I really find amazing, that we can, the universe is actually starting to make sense now. And mm -hmm. um, everything's in patterns and everything's kind of this wonderful jumble of mystery that we're too stupid to understand. And I really like that. I really like that. <laughs> I like being stupid. And then like, you know, being finding open, out being stupid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you have to be, you have to be right, as a physicist. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned about seeing patterns and wondering about what you don't know. And it's really interesting to me because I know you as someone who has a PhD in theoretical physics, but I also know you as someone who is really interested about spirituality and faith. And often these two worlds don't collide. I'm just wondering how you bring these two seemingly different worlds together. What's your mm -hmm. thought process? What's, how do you make those connections? Yeah, I, I think that's a question that people have been fighting over for thousands of years, right? Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not thousands, maybe about a thousand years. You could argue even like a hundred years. I think this conflict between religion and science is a fallacy. I think it's something that's actually very new. It's very overplayed and it's now got to the point where it's almost self-prescribed. You look at some of the most controversial figures in the battle between religion and science as we see it. You look at Darwin and where is he buried? He's buried in Westminster Abbey, which is the, the seat of <laughs> religious power in, in London, right? And right. there was no controversy with him being buried there. They saw a great man who did amazing things and they buried him with a full Christian religious ceremony. And, you know, I think nowadays with a lot of conflict, especially with, you know, Richard Dawkins and, and people like that, I don't see much difference really don't see much difference between religion and science. They're both trying to paint a picture of the world around us. Mm. And they both do it in different ways. And in a way, speaking as a religious person myself, I do consider myself a religious person. I think that religious institutions are to blame. Mm. I genuinely do. Because you look at what science's job is, and, and that's to try and find new truth. And the way that it does that is to be very comfortable with you know, what you said earlier, be very comfortable with not knowing something and being very comfortable asking a question why and being very comfortable in one's own ignorance. And I think that's absolutely vital. Whereas a lot of the religious world, and it's absolutely not everybody, but a lot of the religious world are very uncomfortable with that. Yeah, it's a deep insight. Yeah, yeah there, there has to be an answer to everything and, and we are the ones that have to give it. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually hinders the process. And I think I was taught that very early on due to my kind of religious upbringing. And I was taught to read different religions. I was taught to read Buddhism and Taoism and Islamic religions and the other Abrahamic faiths. And I think because of that, I never got indoctrinated by one particular religion. And when you have that kind of spiritual education and that kind of openness, reading things as a scholar rather than as a religious follower, then actually the similarities between religion 
and science in their goals and their aims and also the heart in which people pursue them, it's actually the same. Mm. Everything else is just silly arguments between silly people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't want to offend anyone, but that's the way I see it. (laughs) No, I think you make some really important points. And you described yourself as a religious person and studying a lot of different ideas. What about your personal experience with God or um, source or whatever you would call that identity? How does that factor in? Those of you who know me, I'm not a very kind of emotional, typically spiritual person. Mm. I'm very kind of maybe a lot more academic, not so expressive. So I definitely approach religion in a more kind of intellectual way mm-hmm. and in less of an intuitive way. But I have had certain experiences in my life with other people and I've observed certain things both throughout human history and just the way that people are and the good things that people do for each other, which I think have no other explanation. I'm not so much of an intuitive person, Mm -hmm. but when looking at the way that human beings relate with each other and throughout human history and today and the relationships that I've seen in my life, I've pretty much come to a solid conclusion not just intellectually, but kind of deep down as well, that there is an aspect of humanity that actually I believe is the most important aspect of humanity, which is something that we can only pursue through a more spiritual, for want of a better word, honestly, Mm -hmm. uh, a life, a more spiritual life, a more internal, a more relationship-driven life. Mm -hmm. And I think actually those things are the key because Yes, we look at you know, what makes a human being really human. It's art, it's exploration, it's expression, it's music, it's these kinds of things. Actually, they're not the things that benefit our survival. You know, they're not the things that actually put food on the table or whatever, but they're so essential to human beings. And without those kinds of things, then everything else doesn't mean anything. I think just kind of thinking about those kinds of things in a more cerebral way really brought out those emotional relationships Mm -hmm. with uh, those concepts in my life. You know, you talked at the beginning of our conversation about how sometimes in research, people see the big picture, but they see a certain piece that's missing. They can perhaps assume what might be in that place and wonder about that. And I was wondering, what are you curious about? Like, what would you like to discover? Or what question do you have that remains unanswered, but you have a hint that, hey, there's an answer there? Um, well, that's a big question. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, it's a big question because, you know, my natural inclination as a theoretical Uh physicist is pretty much there's a holy grail in theoretical physics. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is the holy grail. Okay. I'm going to have to give some background on this. Please do. You've seen the periodic table, which is, you know, all the chemicals and everything has their place. And the periodic table is laid out in such a way that it wasn't always complete. It's pretty much complete now, but there used to be gaps in it. And people could see that gap and go, oh, there's a gap there. Let's try and find that element and then fill it in. Mm -hmm. Physics is the same, but with all the forces and all the particles and everything that we see and don't see in the universe. So we also kind of have this jigsaw puzzle. And the holy grail 
is to be able to fill in this big jigsaw puzzle. And hopefully that will give us the answer to why everything is in the universe. And, and it's big. <laughs> and another expression of that is we have our mechanical forces that we see in the world around us. You know, you push something and it moves forward. You drop something and it drops to the right. floor. And then this guy called Einstein came and he was like, right, I'm putting a big equation for why all this stuff is, you know, his famous theory of general relativity. And later on, some new guys came along and was like, actually, if we make things really, really small, none of your rules make sense. So we've got one set of rules that governs the small world or the quantum world. And we've got yeah. another set of rules which governs the world around us, but they don't make sense. They're completely incompatible. Mm. And no one's come up with a reason as to why both of these things can exist in the same universe that we see around us. Because they do. Yeah. We've seen them. So the person that comes up with that little rule is yeah. going to be the most famous physicists in history, essentially. Yeah. And a lot of people who come from a religious perspective, and they see that as unlocking the truth of the universe or unlocking God, essentially, you know, seeing proof of God. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. And one of the things that if you, okay, for any people studying physics in university, if you dream of being Einstein or Niels Bohr or anything like that, I would dash those hopes because that's <laughs> not how physics works anymore. It's now a very collaborative yeah. uh, project. So now I would be very comfortable with being a part of a team that unlocks a very small part of the puzzle. And mm. that's what I would love to do. I would love to just do something small that contributes to the wider effort. And, you know, something, something to do with that. You know, if, mm -hmm. I can, if I can provide a link between the things that we can see and the things that we can feel, then that would be wonderful. That would be great. Wow. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about, you know, your professional work in the realm of physics, but I've heard for the last couple of years, you're also doing some other work. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah. So I don't like being pinned down very okay. much. I don't like doing one thing. <laughs> and unfortunately, when you go into academia, mm. you have to really go into academia. It's very difficult to kind of do stuff on the side or if you have other passions, it's very, it's very difficult to scratch those itches. And yeah, I think I've spent most of the last couple of years kind of organizing, organizing people and organizing stuff. And one of the downsides of theoretical physics is that you don't actually do anything useful for anyone ever. You know, <laughs> you write an equation, maybe, that might, might be useful to somebody in a hundred years, oh. but you don't, actually, you don't actually change anyone's life, you know, mm. and you don't actually uh, help anyone. Actually, that's the reality. You don't help anyone. And I do feel that something that is important, at least in my life, to actually get some stuff done and to actually make somebody's life easier or whatever. So I've been going around entering the world of political and religious summits around the world, which I found absolutely fascinating. And it's opened up this brand new world of people to me that I've you know, really started to, to love and respect people that I didn't respect and love before. And that's mostly religious people and politicians. Um, <laughs> and it's helped balance me out a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, using my skills in 
mathematics and statistics and this kind of being able to organize stuff in my head and work high pressure, high intensity environments, but actually applying those to more humanitarian things and applying those into people instead of numbers. Mm-hmm. So I've been mostly spending time in, in Africa, which is just such a wonderful place. And it's given me such broad perspective now, which I feel a lot more rounded and, and I feel a lot more nourished by the people and the world around me. And it's opened up a new level of thinking in that I can actually apply a lot of theories of physics into how the world works, which has been incredibly wonderful experience for me, kind of discovering those new things. Hmm. What changed in your perspective? with the religious and the political that has you say words like respect and admire? I think definitely the most important thing that I have, I knew it in my head, but I didn't know it in my heart. And, and I think this is something that the world, specifically in its current situation with a lot of the current problems are going on, is really failing to understand. And that's that everyone is looking for the best possible outcome. Everyone even your enemy, even the person who you think is so misguided, actually they're looking for the best possible outcome and they just have a different perspective. And if you don't take that perspective into account and try to to come up with an elegant unifying situation and an elegant unifying compromise and philosophy, then you're missing the point and actually part of the problem. And talking to people from nations who have been colonized and really horrendously treated and nations who are you know still practicing slavery today and nations that are still in totalitarian dictatorships actually when you talk to those people they're good people actually mm-hmm. you know but they just have a different perspective and actually that's kind of how physics is in a way you know, there are so many theories of time, for example. Time, we don't know anything about time. We don't know anything about gravity. All these basic <laughs> concepts which we think we know about. Yeah. You know, you talk to five different professors in a room and you've got five different theories and that all of them make sense. And I'm going to have to ask you to come back to that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I mean, we can talk about time. I, I love talking about time. <laughs> Seeing all these perspectives and bringing enemy nations together to sit around a table and discuss common problems and what their solutions are. And, you know, sitting down at the dinner table and all of their country's problems and their collective arguments or whatever kind of melt away. It's actually a wonderful thing to see. And we don't see it enough. We don't see it enough in today's society. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so human. And that perspective has really influenced my life a lot more than it did before. Yeah, you know, you talked about how perspectives shape us, and I think that's really true. In any of the work that you've done in the last couple of years, have you seen people shift their perspective? And I'm just curious about what stimulated that. I very much have, and I'm not the most optimistic person in the world. I default at cynic (laughs) and then work to try and get proven right, you know, (laughs) kind of thing. I have seen certain things that have just amazed me. I have seen Islamic leaders be lectured about Jesus and been like, wow, this is incredible, and then standing ovation. Mm. And they haven't changed their religion or anything like that. But I was in this situation where I was in an Islamic country and there was 
it's a wonderful country. I was in Senegal and it's Islamic African, but they're not, they're not fundamentalist. They're very practical mm. there and you know, very loving. They don't have religious tension there. And I heard them listen to a 20 minute speech about all of human history centering on Christianity. And then I'm looking around the room. It was, it was given in Korean. So I'm listening to the translation. And as the translation's coming through, I'm kind of looking around the room thinking like, oh my goodness me, what is going on right now? Are we going to have to make a hasty exit? And then seeing like tears in the crowd and seeing, you know, like I said, standing ovation and invitations, please talk at my mosque and all this sort of stuff. I, I was amazed. And it really made me realize, you know, all this tension in the world that we see in religion is the same tension in the world that we see just between people. There's nothing more fundamental about it and there's nothing more dangerous about it. It's just the same squabbles that we experience in a daily life between, you know, brother and sister and, and stuff like that, just scaled up a little bit. And those things are, there is a way to overcome them. Mm. And that's by approaching each other with love and affection and approaching each other with honesty and truth and forgiveness and sorrow. Just all the emotions which speak integrity. You can really change people's hearts regardless of what 2,000 years of history say. And I would not believe it if I didn't see it with my own eyes. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it several times now. That must be really encouraging for you. It is. <clears throat> it is. I don't want to say that I'm optimistic that we can solve the world's problems, but at least I think I know how mm -hmm. it can be done. Wow. That is very yeah. cool. I encourage yeah. you in that work. I'd like to ask about time. <laughs> <laughs> what's, yeah. time what's time? Ollie? You open a can of worms yeah. there. I mean, like, what are some of the biggest misconceptions <laughs> that the average person has about time? Biggest misconception that the average person has about time is that we understand it. Um, <laughs> and then there is another misconception which they think comes from an educated place but actually doesn't and that is that time is the fourth dimension of the universe so we have three dimensions we move you know x y and z axis and then we have time which kind of is stuff that moves through that and actually yes that's a very oversimplified way of thinking about it but essentially Oh gosh, I have to go really, I have to go really deep into this. Um, Feel free. Let, let, me try, let me try and formulate like a sim simple way of, of going through this. Okay, here we go. The most common misconception about time is that we all experience the same time. Hmm. As we know from uh, a, lo a lot of experiments that we've done, and uh, as we know from Einstein, that uh, time is, is actually relative. Your version of time is not the same as David's version of time, despite him, sorry, <laughs> Heather's version of time yeah, is not the right. same as David's version of time, <laughs> despite you, you know, sitting across from each other. And it's all relative according to where you are mm -hmm. and, you know, how you're moving. Um, you know, they've even done experiments to prove this. This is a very real thing. I don't know if you know, but when they first sent the first satellites up, they didn't take into account that these satellites moved at hundreds and thousands of miles an hour. And actually, that meant that the time on the satellite was different because it was moving so fast to the time that we were here. So very, very quickly, all the clocks went off, which meant all the GPS signals went off. I did not um, know that. So if you took a clock mm -hmm. and you set it 
another clock exactly the same, set them to the same time, and you put one in an F-16 fighter and you flew around at Mark II or whatever they can do. No, I don't think they can do Mark II, can they? I don't know. I don't know. And, uh, you know, for an hour or so and then came back down, you would see that they're at different times. Mm. And um, for those of you who have seen Inception, uh, no, not Inception, what is it? Um, Inception's the dream one with Leonardo DiCaprio, right? What's the, uh, yeah. oh. what's the one where they all go to, you know? Oh, uh, it, yeah, where it's like Merv, the daughter. What is the name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they, time moves completely differently for them. And, you know, that's actually true. That's actually based on, on real mm -hmm. life and physics. Mm. So time is actually subjective. It's not an objective thing that we all experience. Right. Interstellar, that's what it is. Interstellar, that's the one, yeah. interstellar. So time is very subjective. And I think to kind of why that is subjective, sorry, why that is subjective and how we experience that subjectivity in our own lives is something which wildly differs from theory to theory. You know, can we go back in time? Can mm. we branch away from time? Can we deviate time and bring it back together again? These are all things that different models say either yes or no, depending on whatever maths you've decided to do. And, and these are things that I think will be proven in time, funnily enough. Um, <laughs> although we experience time as linear, time is not linear. Time is, you know, we experience time much as an ant experiences a rope. But the fact is, we know from our human point of view that we can bend ropes and we can squiggle them around and we can loop them on each other. A rope is not just a single straight line as the ant is experiencing. Mm -hmm. So we are like the ant on the rope of time, essentially. Mm. And actually, it's just that we cannot perceive these squiggles and all of the loops and things like that. And how we can manipulate the rope and how that rope actually is shaped and whether or not it can be manipulated is something that's yet to be discovered to which extent those yeah. things can be done. Hmm. So uh, to bring this back to spirituality and our own kind of personal growth and things like that, I think when we discover this link between subjectivity in time and objectivity in the world around us, and we get that link between subjectivity and objectivity, we will understand the link between subjectivity in the world and the universe around us that we can see and feel as a group and as a collective mm -hmm. and objectivity of the things that we feel inside. And I believe that linking those two things specifically will provide huge insight into bringing together the spiritual and the physical. Mm -hmm. Do you think there is an objectivity? I think there is. Mm -hmm. Not everybody agrees with me, but I, I think there is an objectivity. And I think that objectivity is created by us as a collective. And that doesn't make it less objective just because it's been created. Interesting. And, and again, you know, even, even subjectivity and objectivity, even, you know, even those terms are, are subjective. You know? yeah. So actually, right. it all becomes very complicated and very, very philosophical. You know? Actually, theoretical physics is also philosophy, essentially. Yeah. It's yeah. philosophy that we describe in maths instead of describing in numbers. Yeah, Sorry. Like you're getting into ontology in, in words. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's cool. Wow, I actually understood your explanation of time. And as a non-scientist, I want to thank you because you actually made it understandable. I got it. <laughs> uh, I hope so. It's just, well, that's the thing. Like I said before, it wasn't useful to you yet. <laughs> but maybe one day, like having that understanding that time is not linear and not something that we all yeah. experience the same. Maybe one day it will be useful. Who knows? Mm -hmm.
Yeah, well, I think it's really healthy. I mean, I think you said it earlier. I don't know who the coach is by, but science isn't about what you know, but it's about what you're willing to not know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think just being able to, I think the answer, the speaking about something that we take for granted or think we know mm-hmm. about, like time, and just being able to put it in the category of not quite known or maybe not known yeah. at all, I think invites a certain sense of humility, but also openness to it. Yeah. And I think that's something really beneficial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's this mindset of not knowing something, which actually fuels me and fuels a lot of people. Because as soon as we know everything, the field of physics is going to cease to exist. Mm-hmm. It all becomes mechanics at that point, which is applied physics. And once we find everything out, you know, actually, that's a, really, that's a scary real prospect that a lot of people are dealing with right now in the world of physics. This idea that actually maybe there is no point to it and the field will cease to exist. Mm. And it gets reflected every now and again in certain, when certain theories and certain discoveries, they throw this whole pattern issue into question. They, they throw the whole jigsaw puzzle into question. Is mm. this actually a jigsaw puzzle or are we just fitting squiggly things together because they fit? Is there really order or is there not? As soon as people find out there's no order, then there's no point looking anymore. So. <laughs> mm, yeah. yeah. Sounds like it can be quite melancholy. Or is the order just coming from the people who are putting it together? Like when you said created objectivity? Definitely. Yeah. De- definitely. <laughs> Interesting. I appreciate you taking the time to look at the question. I could keep going on with you. I- I'm wondering, is there a question that you wish people would ask you? Um, oh, oh, gosh, that's a, that's a question I've never been asked before. So I guess n- <laughs> not, not that one. Um, a question that I wish people would ask me. I, I don't think so. No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I love questions when they come and often when they come, they're things I've never thought about before. Hmm. And I think there are too many questions out there to be worried about the questions you're not being asked. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's the best answer. Yeah. That's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. And you know, I, I'm, I'm, I like to think of myself as relatively well-rounded and, you know, I have a wide interest in a lot of different topics. I think politics, religion, philosophy, science, life, I just really enjoy all of those different things. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if one person doesn't ask me about one thing, then they'll ask me about another thing. So it'll be fine. Okay. Mm. Thank you. Sounds good. You've done so many different things in your life by the sound of it. It's very intriguing for me. But I'm just wondering, like, what are you most excited about right now? Oh, this is going to sound so bleak. Oh, my goodness. I've just, <laughs> see, this is something I, again, I've never thought about before. But then an mm-hmm. answer popped into my head and it's awful. But I'm really excited about another philosophical and theological conflict between communism and democracy mm. and like what that actually means. I'm really excited about that because when it first happened, you know, in the, in the 70s and the 80s, yeah. it kind of ended in a stalemate yeah. in a way. And of course, you know, certain people came out ahead or whatever, but people didn't get happier because of it. Mm. You know, countries flourished and economies did whatever, and there was a lot of suffering and some people didn't suffer quite as much, but it didn't help the world as such in, in the ways that everybody thought it might do. Mm-hmm. You know, with the with the downfall of communism in the late 80s and the collapse of the USSR and the bringing down of the Berlin Wall in 89 and things was supposed to be this new renaissance of 
incredible governance and incredible people coming together, that actually people ended up that actually there's still a hole in their heart. And I think that's the reason we still have the same philosophical conflicts today. It's because it was a, a war, not a resolution. And mm. I'm excited, actually, that people are talking about this again. Mm-mm. Because it was kind of brushed under the carpet last time. And because of that, people are still suffering today. And there's still huge injustices in the world on both sides in the name of their respective philosophies. And, you know, it, it is a bleak outlook on things, but sometimes there needs to be conflict. It doesn't have to be physical conflict, but there does need to be conflict in order to make things better. Right. Hmm. Yeah, there needs to be a dialogue, you know, about materialism, as you said, like about communism versus democracy or maybe a new entity. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think we are, as a world in 2020, as opposed to a world in the 1980s and 1970s, as a human race, we have higher standards of morality. We have more tools in terms of information sharing. We have greater a means to communicate and see perspectives of people from all around the world. You know, I don't think a lot of people could really make that claim. Whereas now it's, it's very normal for somebody to say, oh, you know, I know someone in there and there and there. You know, these conflicts, you know, right now, the UK and China is not getting on very well. You know, China is not getting on very well with a lot of Western nations. But you know, I have friends in China and mm-hmm. That's great because it helps me understand their situation a little bit more. You know, the situation in Hong Kong, I have friends in Hong Kong and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, that wasn't the case before. It was this sense of otherness and this distance, you know, that we had with our enemies actually allowed us to more easily resolve these philosophical conflicts with violence and tragedy. Whereas I think that that's not necessary now. Even though it might happen, it's not necessary. And, and even it being not necessary is a huge step in the right direction. Right. Mm. And I, I think also in 2020, you know, we're obviously facing a pandemic. There are so many global issues. I think people are thinking on a global level more so than perhaps in the early 80s as well. And yeah. it's kind of forcing us into this things we have to deal with as a human race. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't have things like, you know, before the first world, the second world, and the third world, you know, right. that doesn't really exist anymore. The first mm-hmm. world being the United Kingdom, the United States, and Europe, and the Allies, and the second world being China and Russia and all of that, mm-hmm. and the third world being everybody else. You know, we don't have those boundaries of like their side and my side anymore. It's now just okay. What can we actually do to come together and make something real happen? Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's what I'm excited about. Yeah. I'm hearing there's like an excitement around approaching the conversation again with the possibility of more than just ending the conversation because we stopped talking about it. Yeah. And and because we pointed nukes at each other. It's like, okay, conversation (laughs) over. Right. (laughs) Like resuming the conversation, having it be resolved in a way, you know? Yeah. 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 Thank you. All right, cool. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about it before, but thanks for bringing that to, att- to my attention. Yeah. Oh, mm. thanks for bringing it to our attention too, Ali. I just got to thank you for you know, coming on this conversation with us because you've made me think of so many different things. 
I'm going to go and think about time now. <laughs> I'm not sure I, what I'm slippery do slope. I do. I advise against it. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm going to do with those thoughts, but um, I will be thinking about it. But just your thoughtful answers, and it, it's so exciting to see someone who is deeply rooted in the field of sciences, but also has so much curiosity in the world of humanities and the desire to do something. So. Just grateful to have this conversation and for everything you've brought up. I'm, I'm really so grateful much. as well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, final question we'd like to ask is, to you, what does it mean to be wholehearted? For me, what it means to be wholehearted is to be able to look at somebody and without any judgment, without anything other than compassion and love, to be able to look at somebody and to listen to their point of view, even if you disagree with it, even if it goes against everything that you've been taught to believe, that it's not self-doubt. It's not self-doubt. It's trust in somebody else's experience. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that, that is what it means to be wholehearted in a relationship. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. With thoughts like that, we can have hope for a better world, huh? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Ollie. Thank you so much, Ali. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for everything that you do. I, I really enjoy the, the work that you do. And I'm very new to it. I am very new to it. I was only introduced to it maybe three weeks ago. But honestly, it's, it's really great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode please check out our Meditation Mondays and 4-Minute Fridays. Hope you're doing well and have a wholehearted week.